welcome to another MLEX podcast. I'm Laurel Henning, Senior Correspondent at MLEX, and joining me for today's podcast is Australasian Managing Editor James Paniki. Hi, James. Hello, Laurel. Country Care. It's a company our listeners outside of Australia might not be very familiar with, and on paper, that seems fair enough. A rehabilitation service provider, or a provider of mobility aids and assistive technologies. The company is based in a rural town called Mildura in Australia's southeastern state of Victoria. But this little company is involved in a landmark Australian court case. James, as the proceedings make their way to federal court, which may well be in my neck of the woods in Sydney, tell us why the allegations against Country Care are so groundbreaking. Okay, look, they're groundbreaking because this is the first time that Australia's 2009 criminal cartel laws have really been put to the test. Now, there have been two successful prosecutions so far under this legislation. Both of those involved Japanese shipping companies and the prosecution was part of a global cartel. So um, it was all very far removed from the Australian context. The country care case involves charges against, firstly against an Australian company, which is is definitely a first, uh, and it also involves charges against two people. Now, criminal uh, cartel charges against individuals um, haven't uh, occurred before in Australia, so that's another first. So Uh, This prosecution is important. Uh, It's also unfolding as another two uh, criminal cartel prosecutions have been announced, with possibly three more to be announced over the coming year. So, I mean, you're you're right, absolutely right to point out that this case is relatively uh, small in terms of the money and the industry involved, but... Uh, It is significant because uh, lawyers uh, on much larger cases coming up are getting uh, their first taste of how the prosecution will be managed by both the competition watchdog, the ACCC, uh, which uh, investigated the case, and also by federal prosecutors who uh, have had to bring this case to court. Okay, and then let's look at your coverage of the hearings, because judging by that in the Melbourne Magistrates Court over the past few weeks, I mean, you've you've been there constantly, basically. The issue of immunity um, there has been central to the case. The defence appears to think that the granting of immunity in the context of a criminal cartel prosecution is uncharted territory and therefore open to challenge? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, and that is why this case is likely to be a dress rehearsal for future criminal cartel prosecutions. Now, rightly or wrongly, the defence uh, appears to think that there is something uh, indeed unusual or untested about the way in which the federal prosecutors granted uh, immunity. Now, immunity in this context comes in the form of a so-called letter of comfort. Uh, Now, this letter of comfort, which sounds a bit bizarre, (laughs) but it's been uh, mentioned uh, repeatedly. It was granted to the two witnesses in the case by the federal prosecutors. Uh, These two witnesses uh, cover slightly different areas of the prosecution. This is a prosecution which includes charges relating to a criminal cartel and a related allegation of bid rigging. And within those two different areas, there are also other subsections. So the whole thing gets very complicated very quickly. But the defence's logic is that uh, this is the first time that federal prosecutors have dealt with criminal cartel cases uh, and also their decision to accept the promise made by the ACCC to grant these two witnesses immunity is a significant departure from the prosecutor's usual approach. There is a chance that the judge might direct the jury to consider the evidence uh, of what the defence is calling the immunised witnesses to treat this evidence with some level of scepticism because 
these witnesses may have been motivated uh, to provide evidence by their desire to obtain immunity. In other words, uh, their their testimony might be in some way unreliable. Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then just thinking again about the, the ripple effect of this case, which we mentioned earlier, um, we know that lawyers working on the upcoming ANZ, Deutsche Bank, Citigroup cartel prosecution are observing this very closely. Why is that? Uh, yes, yes, they are. I mean, you follow the ANZ case more than I have, but we both know that that case is very different. Uh, it's about arrangements put in place between the bank and its underwriters as it uh, was in the process of issuing shares. But the immunity side of this, uh, of, of things, could be relevant. And could that then be, sorry, just jumping in, could that be undermined as well? You were just talking about the uncertainty of immunity in this case. Could that have an Yes, I think here? so. I think, I think the two things are connected, and that's why uh, so many lawyers involved with the ANZ criminal cartel uh, case uh, would be looking at this with great interest. Now, what we know about the ANZ case is that the documents mention another bank, JP Morgan, yet JP Morgan and its managers uh, haven't been charged. Why is that? Well, we assume that there's some kind of immunity deal uh, put in place, mm-hmm. although, um, as you know, there's no confirmation of that for the time being, and that will be revealed yeah. in court. Um, but from the documents in a related civil lawsuit brought against the ANZ uh, by the financial regulator ASIC uh, here in Australia, there um, there is plenty of evidence going around. There's possibly a conference call recording which will be used against the banks. Now, this leads us to conclude that there must have been someone in the room where it happened. Uh, if that's the case um, uh, and uh, if an immunity deal has indeed been offered to JP Morgan then a way in which the judge in the, the the way in which the judge in the country care case deals with immunity uh, over coming weeks will indeed be of great interest to all of the lawyers who might be uh, preparing the ANZ defense uh, as we speak today okay let's dig a little deeper into the the case and the disputes um this week or the arguments i guess that were heard this week um in terms of the contracts that are at the heart of this case you reported this week that there was a law firm involved in drawing up those contracts what are the implications of that piece of information yes now you'll remember recently we were talking about another case which was the gun jumping civil cartel case in melbourne involving a company called cryocyte Now, in that case, uh, there was also a contract uh, that the court found to be in violation of competition law. So there was a sort of a central cartel contract, which was a key piece of evidence. That contract had been also drafted by an external law firm. So the company had brought in a a firm and the lawyers had drafted this contract. Now, this was surprising to the judge because clearly there was some bad legal advice um, at the centre of that. And, of course, none of that would help you uh, if you're facing a prosecution. I mean, Country Care and the two men who are facing charges, in particular the managing director, Robert Hogan, uh, they won't be able to avoid charges by simply saying, look, it wasn't me, it was the lawyers, I just let the lawyers do their job because ultimately he signed off on it. Um, so and, and clearly that wouldn't wash. But the defence may want to point uh, to the involvement of a law firm uh, in, in drafting that central document um, to say, look, this wasn't a smoke-filled room full of cartelists. They were doing this in the open. They were doing it with the assistance of a law firm. Now, this may be an attempt to question the criminality of the offence, 
Um, now, they might be doing this, obviously, to avoid uh, jail time, which can be up to 10 years per offence with criminal cartel prosecutions. Uh, and they're also very severe uh, pecuniary penalties. But they might be saying, look, the, the offence here might not be serious enough to warrant a, a criminal charge because uh, it was done in the open with the assistance of a law firm. Now, whether or not any of this will, will wash remains to be seen, but um, this might be pointing to a particular direction that the defence might want to take uh, in the course of the uh, federal court hearings. And you managed to obtain some documents at the end of the hearings, correct? The parties the parties agreed to release a brief summary of the allegations, which was totally, for our job, was totally inadequate. Uh, and uh, referring to the release of the information, the judge said, um, said, oh, look, this is fine because, you know, essentially the media, they don't need too much detail. They just need the broad strokes. They just need to sort of create a narrative. That's I think not how MLEX words. works. Exactly. I mean, that's the, the opposite of, of what we do yeah. at MLEX. We're obviously interested in the detail. We're interested in going through the documents. So this document that we now have is better than nothing. Uh, but uh, we're still flying blind on a number mm. of issues. The only reason why we know that the two central witnesses in the case, whose names are uh, Andrew Cudahy and Tony Christmas, the only reason why we know that they've been offered immunity is because the lawyers mentioned uh, mentioned this in passing. I mean, they just they just happened to mention it one day when I was in court. Uh, so this is, I mean, this is really infuriating. It's really. Uh, got me upset, but this obviously is one for my <laughs> proverbial therapist, uh, and not for you, Laurel. Also, because I mean, you've had your own fish to fry this week. You've been reporting on uh, New Zealand's attempt at overhauling its leg- its uh, privacy legislation. That process is in full flight uh, as we speak at the moment, uh, and the proposed legislation is now before Parliament. But what? What came out on this front this week uh, exactly and what will be in the final set of rules? Yeah, let me just draw you away from your anger into into my coverage of our New Zealand <laughs> yes, privacy legislation. Please do. So yes. this week, um, what was coming out of the, the parliament, it was the New Zealand Parliament's Justice Committee that came out with this report, which was a combined report and update to its drafting of um, of the Privacy Bill, which itself is an update of a 1993 Act. Um, so there were two kind of parts of this document. It was an incremental step in and of itself, but also because of what we're looking at in terms of legislative change, it's quite a big deal. So it was a 238-page report taking into account some 182 written submissions from companies, your usual suspects, including Samsung, Vodafone, of course, Facebook, Facebook, as well as leading um, New Zealand lawyers and experts. So these submissions have been coming in since June last year, and the report had been delayed already, I think partly because of the number of submissions or just to gather more views uh, since last November. So it's really been hotly anticipated, and I think that's partly why um, it's created such an impact as well. And and what were the main changes? Um, so there were sort of some main things that people were looking out for. Firstly, notifiable data breaches. Obviously, we've had new legislation in Australia on that that was introduced February of last year. Um, and part of New Zealand's um, drafting process has been a waiting game, seeing how things play out in Australia. Also looking at how um, the implications of the EU's GDPR regulation coming into force as well. Just waiting a little bit to see what they should do and what thresholds they should set. So the 
the earlier draft of the New Zealand bill had faced some quite heavy criticism for being um, too loose in the thresholds that it was setting on when a data breach should be notified. Um, and so this new draft sets a higher threshold. It talks about um, serious harm. So um, a notification should be made when it's reasonable to believe a data breach has caused serious harm or is likely to do so. That's a very close alignment with what we have in Australia. Yes, although that um, is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's been hotly uh, contested exactly. in Australia, hasn't it? Yes. Exactly, because um, it's still led to over-notification here and it's still causing concerns about compliance costs. So whether that's going to be a high enough threshold, that remains to be seen. Um And then there were other, they sort of elaborate a little bit more on what makes something serious harm and how to work that out. But we'll just also move on there to other things that were being sort of main highlights from this report. And I think the other main feature included raising penalties from $2,000 New Zealand dollars to $10,000 for um, offences and non-compliance. But then on an international level, $10,000 New Zealand dollars is not that high. So I think they're relying on having a very compliant market was what I was being told. How's the uh, how's the legal community in New Zealand uh, reacting to all of this? Have they have they broadly welcomed these changes? I think the raised uh, threshold for notifications um, is is something that everyone's very pleased with. Um, but it's hard to tell, as we just said briefly there before. It's hard to tell if it's going to be enough. Um, I think there will still probably be when this enters into force, there will still be a big leap in terms of notification, which has happened in Australia as well. It's just built and built and built. Each quarterly report in Australia shows more and more notifications taking place. And I think you'd see some sort of sense of equivalency um, across in New Zealand as well. And in terms of penalties, again, yes, pleased. I think probably lawyers are pleased that their clients wouldn't be facing too high a penalty in terms of an international um, stage in comparison. Um, And again, this reliance on having a compliant market which, yeah, I, I don't know what I think about that, really. Okay, and so what's next in this process? Where do we go from here? So um, as I was saying at the beginning, it's, it was a pretty incremental step um, this week. There still need to be two parliament readings and then a vote. So um, right now it's understood there's bipartisan support for these rules. Still, there are concerns, um, especially by the, op- the opposing national party, which was still talking about these thresholds being too low, there being confusion, the high compliance costs, though this does go some way to addressing sort of the risks of the modern digital economy. But uh, yeah, I think people are still hopeful this will be a 2019 law, but there's still lots, lots for us to report on and lots of debate to be had in Parliament, I imagine. And Laurel, thank you for uh, for covering this uh, this obviously very important uh, issue over the past few weeks. And obviously, uh, you've got quite a lot of work ahead of you on this front. So good luck with all of that. Thanks, James. And thanks for discussing another big week of uh, Australian and New Zealand coverage. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You can find links to the coverage discussed today in the show notes. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast for the latest from MLEX. If you rate and review the podcast, it will make it easier for other people to find us. But from James Paniki and me, Laurel Henning, goodbye.